Uh, good morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, as we continue with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Golden Rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. Um, we are on the kind of downward slope of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we are going to, uh, the verse, uh, verse 12 is really this kind of conclusion of our greater righteousness as it relates to the world, and then we really enter into Jesus's kind of concluding remarks and um, um, these kind of illustrations that he gives to drive his point home. And so uh, we're going to look at that this morning. John's going to cover um, the, the other two kind of examples and then um, I'll finish us up at the end of the month. Um, and so this morning we come to this passage that's uh, called the Golden Rule. Um, it's probably one of the most well-known passages of Scripture, not just to Christians, but to non-Christians. Um, I would say it's probably so um, well-known that some people might not even know it's, it's from the Scripture. It's just become so ubiquitous in our, our kind of um, culture. And it's very simple, isn't it? Um, it's a very simple idea. Um, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Treat other people the way that you would want to be treated. Um, and it is so simple, but we need to be careful this morning that we don't overlook it because of its simplicity. Um, I think that'd be the danger this morning to do that, that we would see this, this it's so childlike. It's childlike simplicity, isn't it? We, this is one of the first things you learn. Um, and we can overlook it because of that. We can think this is some kind of things we teach our children, and then we kind of move on to deeper and greater um, doctrines as adults. But we look at verse 12, and verse 12 starts off with this word so or therefore, and Jesus is looking back, really concluding um, these ideas that we've had in chapter 7 of our greater righteousness um, in relation to the world, but also, um, I think, broader ideas as well. He's summing up. He's bringing us um, in for the landing, if you will. Um, the golden rule isn't just found in Christian writings. It's found in other writings, ancient writings, and in other religions even. But the thing that's interesting about the golden rule, as Jesus kind of um, puts it, and how we find it in all these other writings, is that in all the other writings, it's put in the negative form. And so it would be, do not do anything to anyone you would not want, not want done unto you. Um, or one of the rabbis, a contemporary of Jesus' time, he, he said it this way, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow creatures. That is the whole law. Everything else is commentary. Everything else is commentary that this is summed up in the whole law. And so they would state it negatively, though. So if you don't like being robbed, then don't rob someone. If you don't like being beaten, then don't beat someone. If you don't like being lied to, then don't lie to someone. But that's not exactly what Jesus says. Jesus pauses it in a positive way. And he says, if you like being loved, then you should love. If you like being appreciated, if you like being honored, then you should appreciate and honor the people. If you like being told the truth, you should be honest. If you like to receive gifts, then you should give. It's us taking action. It's not just withholding evil and bad things from others. It's actually an action. We are actually to love. We are actually to move out in this way, um, which kind of begs the question then, why? Why should we act this way? Why should we act this way? And if we're not careful, we can kind of hear it to be like, well, we should act this way so that people will act that way to us. Like, I want, I want people to give me stuff, so... I'll give them some stuff, and maybe in hopes they'll, they'll give me something back. I want my life to be kind of peaceful. I don't like it to be chaotic, so I'll be nice and peaceful to other people, and, and maybe they'll return the favor. But this isn't what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say do this in some kind of pragmatic kind of way so that or in order that others would do it back. That's not the motivation that Jesus lays before us on how we're to treat other people well, on the reason that we're to love other people sacrificially. He says, 
the reason that we're to do that is for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, um, he's, been, he's been describing throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount what he looks like, ultimately, but what we are to look like, what kingdom of God people look like. How are we to act, our way of being in this world? In other words, this kind of loving behavior conforms to the requirements of the kingdom of God. The kingdom, which is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This is the test of love that is described in chapter 5, 43. We're to love other people. We're to love our enemies. It's the perfection demanded in chapter four, uh, chapter 5, verse 48, that we're to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. It's the truth portrayed in chapter 5, 33, that we're to be honest, that we're to tell the truth. We're to be truth tellers. It's the generosity of chapter 5, 42, 6, 2, that we're to give to the poor. He's describing this life and so on and so on that we could look back through the sermon and many other teachings of Jesus. And again, I want us to be careful that we don't miss the significance of this because of its childlike simplicity. Now, when we hear Jesus talk about the law and the prophets, um, this is a summary again. He's concluding this. He's using this language because he's used this language all throughout the sermon, hasn't he? Um, a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill all of what is required of the law. The law and the prophets. That's a shorthand for the Old Testament. It's the, the Jewish scriptures that they had at the time. Jesus is asked um, at one time by the Pharisees. This is later on in Matthew uh, chapter 22, verses 34. He says, uh, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, it's always going to be trouble when the lawyers show up, asked him a question to test him. So these are people trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trick him into questions. They're trying to test him. They're trying to, this isn't people sitting at the feet of Jesus wanting to learn. And this is the question they ask him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And again, the Pharisees are obsessed with law keeping, aren't they? They are the legalists, literally. <laughs> the legalists, the lawyers, um, the people who were going to keep the law Perfectly, so much so that they added to the law. They added, there were 613 different laws that they would keep. Which one of these is the most important, Jesus? Trying to trap him into saying, well, if it's this one, well, then it must not be this one. And this is what he says to them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then immediately, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. So don't mishear Jesus with some little child like, hey, treat other people the way you want to be treated so that your life could be kind and nice. No, this is fundamentally the way the people of God act because it's all of the law and the prophets characterized in one. Now, we need to be careful um, we in the West, uh, our culture, our society is characterized probably by two things more than anything, individualism and consumerism, right? That's just the water that we swim in. We don't even realize it. Um, that's, that's why it's probably good to go to Uganda and, and other places around the world. Get out of the West and you start to realize people live differently. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean bad or good. It just is different and it's good to know the differences, but we live in a society that is characterized by individualism and consumerism. So if you hear all that Jesus has said, all of the ways that we are to be in the world, all of the things that we've been covering through this Sermon on the Mount, and all we think about is improving our piety of ourself or for ourself, if we're listening to the Sermon on the Mount, when we're discussing this in our missional communities throughout the week, and we think, listen, I need to look and I need to act more like Jesus, which is definitely true. But that doesn't result in leading you to love your neighbor as yourself. We've actually acted and become not like Jesus, but the very Pharisees that he is critiquing all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We have become the thing that Jesus is warning us not to be, a hypocrite. 
Remember, in Jesus' mind, a hypocrite isn't just someone who says he's going to do the right thing but does the wrong thing. It's someone who says he's going to do the right thing, does the right thing, but with a heart full of wrong motive. A heart that's not actually loving God with all of his heart, mind, and soul. One that doesn't eventually lead to loving his neighbor as a self, but one that is actually centered on himself. This is tricky, isn't it? We can, in our individualistic kind of mindsets, think that this is all about me. It's all about me and Jesus. And as consumers, we can dive straight into kind of Christian culture, of which I'm grateful for. I'm grateful we live in a place that has songs that we understand, that has a Bible in our language, that has a heritage um, that has been passed on. Um, I'm grateful for that. But we need to be careful that we don't turn into just consumers of that in in an individualistic kind of way, right? I can come and I can consume church. I can come and consume small group and worship and the books and the podcast. And I can go to conferences and I can do all of these things and it all terminates on me and Jesus and it never moves itself out. It never moves itself out into the world. It never moves itself out to my neighbor. And Jesus is saying, if that's how it ends up, we're just like the Pharisees. It's all for nothing. You've missed the entirety of the law and the prophets. This isn't just about me and Jesus being good. It must propel us out to the love of other people. It must compel us out to love our neighbors with the same love, the same interest that you have in yourself. And it's easy, isn't it, to get stuck? It's easy to get comfortable. It's easy to plant a church and to be on mission and to be out, being out-focused, other-focused, neighborly-focused, Jesus blesses that. People come. You plant a church that's successful, whatever that means. So much so you go plant another one in another part of the city. And then we can just get pretty comfortable. We can really enjoy this and we can really love this. And we really pat ourselves on the back for that. And Jesus is like, keep it going. This can't just terminate about us. It can't just be about us. It has to propel us out, not just in mission, but in sacrificial love as we serve on mission. Um, I love that we we didn't time that uh, today, but to actually hear about people who are going to do that, are going to get up and use holiday time, vacation time, their own time during the summer um, to go and serve other people. Now, if you're um, like me, and you have more older brother tendencies, right, you can start to go in the back of your mind, yeah, but this is like hippie Jesus. This is, you know, this is that feel-good Jesus everybody loves. Give me some, like, solid, teethy, Pauline doctrine. Okay, here you go, Galatians 5. A book that is all about making sure we get the gospel right. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Paul. The whole law, he says, can be summarized by loving your neighbor as yourself. This is a book that's concerned that we get the gospel right The Galatians had lost their way. They started to add to the gospel. Paul writes to them to clarify and to make sure they understand it. And in the middle of that understanding, he wants them to understand that the whole law is fulfilled in how we love other people, our neighbor. Romans 13, the most probably doctrinal heavy book, if, uh, letter that, that Paul wrote. This is what he writes in Romans 13, 8 and 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Do you start to understand how Jesus said he could fulfill the law? 
when he's, when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he hasn't yet gone to the cross, right? So their understanding is still veiled a little bit. We, um, post-death and resurrection and ascension, have clarity to see exactly what he meant. Part of how he fulfills the law is by giving of himself. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. That's Paul in Romans. It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus is like, listen, you say you don't commit adultery, and yet you have lust filling your heart. You say you don't murder people, and yet you have a heart filled with hatred. And Paul says, that isn't loving your neighbor. A heart of lust, a heart of anger. Love does no wrong, therefore it fulfills the law. And so we can ask ourselves, how am I doing as a Christian? Am I living up to what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount? And it's easy because at RMC we're like, man, whew, how are you doing so far in this? And you're like, man, I'm pretty overwhelmed. There's a lot of content. And if I'm being honest, man, if, I, if this is a checklist, there's a lot of these I'm not ticking. But Jesus is going to help us clarify that. You can really just ask two questions. Am I loving God with everything? And is that then manifesting itself in me loving other people? Am I loving my neighbor? Those are the, that's the litmus test, isn't it? That, that's the evidence of a heart that isn't full of anger, a heart that isn't full of lust, a heart that isn't full, all these this interior life that Jesus is calling us to. Not an external piety, a deeper righteousness, one that's actually been affected by um, the grace and the mercy and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The evidence of that is one who is loving other people. Um, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, when he's trying to help them understand what the church is for, how we're to interact with each other, how do we use our spiritual gifts with one another. Um, writes one of the most famous passages on love in the Bible, right? It's often recited at weddings, but it's really about how we love each other, not as in a romantic way, but in this kind of way. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Um, if you hang around here on a Sunday, Usually one of my kids or one of the other elders' kids will be on this drum set just banging away at it. And they don't know how to play yet, so they didn't play it as good as Tom did. It's just noise. It's just, you're like, okay, someone's got to get that kid off the drums. Right? And it's the same way. He says, listen, you can do all these things. You can, you can speak eloquently. You can have the voice of tongues, the tongues of angels and men, all of this. And it just sounds like trash. If it's not motivated, if it's not actually coming from a place of love. He says, if I, I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, understanding all mysteries and knowledge, sign me up for that as a preacher. I, I'd like some of that. But he says, and if I have all faith so I can remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. That's heavy, weighty words. It's all the things that we, as humans, elevate and think uh, we want to be like that. I want prophetic powers. I want to understand all mysteries and knowledge. I want to be able to, to speak. And he says, you're actually nothing, even if you have all of those things. You're like the Pharisees and the hypocrites outside the kingdom of God. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy and boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, endures all things. Love, true love, never ends. 
Why? Because God is love. It's, it's a love that doesn't come from us. It's not a temporal kind of love. It's a supernatural love. It comes from God. It's eternal. It doesn't end. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. That's important on Father's Day, isn't it? You don't have to have kids to be a man. Um, Jesus didn't have any, and I think he was pretty manly, so we'll go with that. Right? This isn't a measure of like cage fighting and how much beer we can drink and all the kind of machoism that we confuse as masculinity. He says what being a man is is actually loving in this way. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of even these is love. Pursue love. This is foundational to what it means, so foundational to what it means to be human. It's one of the first things we teach kids in nursery school. I'm not sure we teach them with all the understanding of the teaching of Jesus that we're unpacking this morning. But we understand fundamentally, if we're to be good humans, if, if, if humanity is going to lead to flourishing, it's going to have to be a description of what we've just talked about. A life that is full of envy, of arrogance, of impatience, that doesn't believe, that doesn't bear, that doesn't give any hope, is not a world that we want to live in. That sounds like war. That sounds like literal hell on earth. And so am I loving people? Am I a loving person? Would people characterize me that way? Would they characterize me with some of these descriptions? What if you just replaced your name? Would they say Lucas is patient and kind? Lucas doesn't envy and boast. He's not arrogant. He's not rude. He doesn't insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He rejoices with the truth. He'll bear all things. He'll believe all things. He'll hope all things. Probably, probably not all the time, no. Certainly my kids wouldn't say that. Irritable? Sometimes, yep. And this is Jesus' point, that we're not just to be a hearer of these words, that those that are legitimately in the kingdom of God are to be doers of this. We are to love other people as ourselves in the way that Jesus loves them. We use this phrase, right? We looked at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that it would be um, on earth as it is in heaven. But just imagine that. Imagine a world this way. Imagine a world where people actually acted this way to each other. Imagine governments acting this way toward one another. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine that, isn't it? We're so far gone systemically from this. We're so broken. But this is Jesus calling us. This is the way to human flourishing. This is how we find our way back to Eden. Eden looks differently in the end, doesn't it? It's this beautiful city, the city of God, where there are no more tears, where that description of 1 Corinthians 13 is the reality of how life actually is. Jesus is saying, listen, the kingdom of God is here. It's now. It's at hand. It's not here in its full fruition yet. We're here in this kind of in-between of of now but not yet. And we are to be this distinct people of God, people who represent what the kingdom of God looks like distinctly in the world. We are to be the lovers of the world. I love... Um, hearing um, Rachel share this vision of loving um, people who have ended up in our country, a lot kind of not of their own will, fleeing um, hard places. And it's, 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 it's kind of heartbreaking to hear that uh, East Belfast isn't the most welcoming because that's got the highest concentration of like Protestants. 
How is that? This should be the Mecca. This should be, this should be where they send all of those people. The fact that we're only in one part of the city, again, is deeper issues, isn't it? And so this is the way of Jesus. He goes on to, to reiterate this then as he starts to draw this conclusion. Um, look at verses 13 and 14. Um, so he says, this is the whole law of the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way, that is, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Again, this has been a major theme, hasn't it, of, of uh, the sermon, sermon. It's the kingdom of God, the way of Jesus. And those that are a part of that, it's this description of that. And it's not an external description. It's this internal description that, yes, manifests itself externally, of course. Notice the difference um, as he describes these roads. It's not always, um, it's not always easy to kind of di- differentiate between what is good on the outside and what is good on the, on the inside. Things that look good on the outside in, in Jesus' estimation often aren't on the inside. What looks like uh, flourishing actually isn't. The wide road is broad. It's spacious. It's comfortable. It's appealing enough to attract the vast majority of people. Most of the people are traveling that road. And so... By just looking at things, you're like, oh, this, this must be the way to go, right? This is where everybody else is. It's a pretty broad, you know, it's paved nice. It's, it's, it's easy traveling. And so without giving it much thought, that's just that's the road that we all kind of end up on, right? We just kind of go with the flow. And that looks like it's the right way, and yet it isn't. Um, this happens all the time. It happened to me last night. Um, I was at the SSC Arena and there was a group of us, we had like these group tickets, and we, had, we were at a different location first, and then we took a little like charter bus over, so we all got off, and I was one of the last kind of people off, and so I started walking to the way that I thought it was supposed to go, but everybody else was going to a different door, and I was like, oh, I guess, well, I guess we're going that way then, and so I just started following everybody else, and then the leader was like, ah, turned around, and he was actually like, no, I'm in the wrong place, we got to go this way, and so me ended up being last, hey, guess what, now I'm first. Because I was going the right way. But I was like, oh, I must not be going the right way because everybody else is going that way. Turns out, um, turns out it wasn't the right way. And this happens all the time. The road is wide, it's broad, it's spacious, it's comfortable. At least that's what it looks like. But in the end, it actually leads to destruction. Think about it this way. If you think about like a cone, right? A cone being big and wide or like a funnel um, on one end and really small and narrow on the other way. Um, and this is that way. We enter through this, what we think is the big, wide part of the cone, but the more you travel down that road, it actually becomes very restricted. It actually becomes very narrow. It actually makes you strip off that backpack and coat and different things so you can try to squeeze through, and in the end, you, you're unable to. It leads to destru- destruction. Jesus flips the cone, and he says, listen, it's the narrow part. And you're like, no, that looks too hard. i got to i got to take this stuff off. I can't, I can't bring stuff with me. That's too small. It's too narrow. I'm never going to get through there. And then imagine once you're in there, like just squeezing through this little tunnel all the time. You're like, no, that's not for me. I want to go through the big wide part. But what looks like the narrow, uncomfortable part, once you're in, actually ends up widening out, and it leads to life. It is the actual place that is spacious. What looks like Slavery actually ends up being freedom. Here's what I've learned just in my own life. The more hesitation there is about going the way of Jesus wholeheartedly, unreservedly, unashamedly, the more confining it is. The more I hesitate about those things, about following Jesus, the more I hesitate, the more I hedge my bets a bit, the more confining that life is. 
But the more enthusiastic I am for following him, regardless of, of personal opinion, of peer pressure, of public opinion, or, or what it costs, it's there that the more liberating his ways are. This is nature of the upside-down kingdom. What looks like death actually leads to life. What looks like life actually leads to destruction. What, what seems like would be bondage and slavery, following Jesus, restriction, actually leads to being liberation and freedom. And what looks like a life of freedom and liberation and I can just do whatever I want unrestricted, actually that's the place that leads to us being enslaved. That's the place that actually leads to more brokenness and eventually destruction. What seems like emptiness actually is fullness. And what seems like a life of, of full actually ends up being empty. Uh, I'm reading a book at the minute, uh, listening to a book called The Second Mountain. And it's kind of essentially that. It's like we take this first mountain in our life, our, our, our career, what we want to make for ourselves, our reputation, all those things. And usually once people climb that mountain, are like pretty unsatisfied with that. This isn't a Christian book necessarily, by the way. New York Times writer going, oh, this isn't actually fulfilling at all. And then people seek out this second mountain. It's actually a life of service to other people. It's not centered on you. It's actually giving our life away that leads us to deeper joy. I think he's right because it's, it's essentially what Jesus says. I don't know if he knows that yet or not. Will we take that road? But it's hard, isn't it? What we see in this text is that God's way can't be discerned or discovered by appeal to majority opinion. The majority of people are on the wrong path, Jesus says. The majority of people are on the broad road that's leading to destruction. And it's hard, isn't it? It's hard when you're in the stream with everybody else going that flow to stop and to turn around and to go upstream. It's hard when the masses are coming this way for you to go, listen, hey, um, I think we're actually going the wrong direction. I think we're on the wrong path. I think our GPS is off. I, I think we actually might not be on the right side of history here. It's difficult. It's hard. With all that pressure. Paul says it this way in Romans 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Let God be true, as if everyone else was a liar. It's the few. Someone actually asked Jesus that question. How many people are actually going to make it into the kingdom, Jesus? Is there going to be a lot? Good question. Let's hear his answer. Luke 13. Luke 13, 22 to 30. This is Jesus' words. He says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. Go through the narrow gate. Find the narrow path. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. He changes the metaphor a bit. When, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you being, uh, begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last... Who will be first, and some who are first who will be last. It's this upside down kingdom, isn't it? Jesus says it'll be few people. No one likes to be left out at all, right? You remember what it was like to be like a teenager and finding out like there was a party and you weren't invited? Kind of stings. You don't want to be left out. We want to do whatever we can to be in. 
But here's the question. You need to decide what you want to be left out of. (laughs) You're going to be left out of something. And so you need to decide what it is you want to be left out of. Do you want to be left out of the world, temporary, temporary pleasure, that actually leads to destruction, or do you want to be left out of the kingdom, eternal joys at the right hand, in the presence of God, life, abundant. The way of Jesus that leads to life cannot be pursued as long as we are motivated by a desire to please the masses. You're a minority. And that's hard to swallow sometimes in a place like Northern Ireland where we're used to a dominant Christian kind of society and culture. And then we, we think that that's the norm when we look at the history of mankind. That's the anomaly. The Christians are always in minority. We are exiled people. But that's where we thrive because it's in those places we actually get opportunities to be like Christ. We get the opportunities to love our neighbor. Famous kind of verse in Joshua 24. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity, not like the hypocrites, and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served before the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, he puts the ultimatum. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, false gods, or the gods of the Amorites in the land that you dwell, false gods. But he says, but as for me and my house, I'm determined. I've made the decision to serve the Lord. And we all have the same decision to make. We have to choose who you're going to serve. What gods are you going to worship? Because that's, it's not, will you be a worshiper of gods? It's which gods will you worship? False gods? Secularism, individualism, consumerism, the culture of death? Or will we actually serve the Lord? Now, I know that verse, choose you this day whom you will serve, right? That sounds like, we're, like you, you get a little bit like, uh, a little bit tensed up because that sounds like that old school fundamentalist kind of like Christian stuff. And, and um, you're like, uh, it makes me a little bit uneasy, this kind of, we're not going to surrender to the culture, choose you this day. You have this kind of way over on, on the right and then way over on the left, there's the opposite of that, right? There's this kind of like, okay, well, we don't want to be that. And so we'll be this kind of like um, progressive, kind of more liberal kind of Christianity that kind of appeals to the masses as well. And so the question that I find myself asking is, well, is there a third way? Is there a third way between kind of like hardcore fundamentalism and progressive kind of liberalism Christianity? Is there a third way? And Jesus in this text says, no, there isn't, because those are the same way. Those are both broad paths. Neither of those. We tend to think, well, one is maybe more Christian and one isn't, and Jesus says they're both not. There's only two ways. There's the broad path, of which you could find both of what I just described on. Both of those have the potential to not be loving in different kind of ways. Both are the broad way. It's hypocritical Pharisees arguing with pagans, and Jesus is calling both of those, both of those groups to faith and repentance. It's both of those groups that he's calling to faith and repentance. Jesus reserves his sharpest kind of critique for those religious pagans. <laughs> Both are outside the kingdom of God, according to Jesus. One is outside in a highly religious, kind of legalistic kind of way, and the other one in a more progressive, liberal kind of way. And Jesus calls both to repent, turn from your self righteous religiosity, repent and turn from self serving selfishness. Turn around from both of those things and find the narrow gate. Find the narrow path that leads to life. 
life abundant, life to the full, a life that leads us to truly understanding, a true understanding of God, a life of flourishing, a life of sacrificially loving other people, loving our neighbor as ourselves, not seeing ourselves as part of God's chosen people to, 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 to draw back from the world in, to, to be anti-cultural kind of in that kind of way, attacking and, and antagonizing because we have the truth. And not to, to just melt into culture so you can't see any difference. We're to be a distinct people of God, a people to whom and through whom God reveals himself. And how he reveals himself through us is by us loving other people. Right? We've just looked at this whole thing about condemning other people, not being judgmental toward other people, taking the plank out of our own eye before we worry about the speck in other people's. And again, we said that doesn't mean that we can't evaluate right and wrong. It doesn't mean we can't make moral calls and judgments. He, he qualifies that by not casting pearls before swine. We're to be discerning people for sure. But we're to do that in a way that compels people by the love of God. John puts it explicitly in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, right? And all the Pharisees say, amen. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not far, is not from the Father, but is of this world. It says, don't be a part of that. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whomever does the will of God abides forever. So this, you could say, this is John's exhortation to the people uh, on the broad path that are non-religious, non-religious people on the broad path, right? He says, don't give in to the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life. None of that's from the Father. It's all passing away. It's all leading to destruction. But that's not all he says. He's also going to, I think, address broad path people who are religious hypocrites. So he says it this way. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is actually still in darkness. He's not in the light. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Broad path outside the kingdom of God, headlong into destruction, religious people thinking they're walking on the narrow path, thinking they're in the light while it's being blinded and in the dark. Jesus calls both of those people to repent, to come, to find true life in Jesus. He goes on, 1 John 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was, the one who, was, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you, right? You're not going to be on that big broad path. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? How do you know that you've passed out of life out of death into life. How do you know you're not on the, on the broad path anymore and you're on the narrow path? Well, according to John, it says, one of the ways that you can do that, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's strong language. That's clear, isn't it? If we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves, you're abiding in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's what Jesus just said, right? You don't have to kill someone. You just have to hate someone to be a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's, narrow, that's the narrow path. Eternal life abiding in him. That's narrow path. He says those who hate, not on it. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? He says, how can you claim to have the love of God abide in you, see your neighbor in need, and not meet that, meet that need? Right? This is the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells. Love your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor exactly? 
It's the guy in need. It's the guy that you walk past. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That is the way of Jesus. That is how we know that we're walking the way of Jesus, that you're on the right path. We don't like in and out kind of talk, but the Sermon on the Mount's full of it. Are you in the kingdom of God or are you outside the kingdom of God? And he entreats us to come, come in. Even you religious people who think you're in but you're not. Jesus says there's room for you too. Praise God, that's me. That's me. We're gonna receive communion as we always do. And I want us to um, consider that, that verse 16 that I just read. By this, we know love. That he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us. His body broken, his blood shed. And that in turn should change you if your heart of stone has been removed and you've been given the heart of flesh. It should change you. It should change you to be more like Jesus so that we too then lay down our lives for other people. We could never, with all of our effort, make it through that narrow gate on our own. We need to be careful because there's a lot of doing talk that Jesus talks about, rightly so, um, because his brother would say the same thing. If you think you have faith, but you don't have any words to back that up, any, any actions, any deeds to back that up, you actually don't have faith. That's, he says that's not a real faith. But don't confuse that and think that we could somehow work our way into faith as well. That's the good news of the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, to be a legit Christian, this is a description of what that looks like, and it's a bunch of doing stuff. But you could never do enough to actually work your way into the kingdom of God. So this idea of a gate, this narrow gate that we have to work through, that we have to get through, what's this gate that we have to get through? In in John's gospel, Jesus is going to explain explicitly what that gate is. This is what he says. So Jesus said to his disciples, he gives us this parable. They don't understand the parable, so then he has to explain it to them. And he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. It's Jesus is the gate. He's the door. All who come before me, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. They're fake. They're false. They're here to steal. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, says Jesus. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out. And what does he find? This constricted space? No, it says he goes in and out and finds pasture. The place of life, a place of abundance. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We enter into the kingdom of God. We enter into this small gate, the small path, not by loving other people. That's a result of us receiving the love that God has given us that changes us to be like Jesus. It empowers us through the power of the Holy Spirit to then go out and love people as Jesus has loved us. That's the key. That's why we come week after week and take bread and wine, body broken, bloodshed, to be reminded. It's, it's, it's what Jesus has already has done for us that allows us then to go out empowered to do the things that he's asked us to do to be the people that he's asked us to be, to bring the kingdom near, to bring it near to lost irreligious people that are headlong in secularism, to bring it near to religious religious people who think they've got it sorted out but are deceived in darkness. And that's the warning for us. Remember earlier on in the chapter, He's like, hey, make sure that's not you too. Do your heart check. Make sure that you're not one of those people. And so we come relying fully on the grace and mercy of Jesus this morning.
to transform us into the lovers that he would have us be. Let's pray. Father, as we come and we receive um, these symbols of your, your body broken for us, your bread, your, uh, in the bread, your blood shed for us as we dip it in the wine. Father, I know I come uh, to the table with all of my failings running through my head. All the ways I, I fail to love other people like myself and I love myself the way that I wish other people would. But Father, we can still come um, as your people to be reminded this morning again through this meal that it was you who's loved perfectly. It's you who laid down your life. It's you who's done the things that we could never do. You are the gate. It's by you. It's by you, you and what you have accomplished, what you have, have done, the way you have loved, that we enter into the kingdom, not by the way that we do. And it's in that then that we actually find the capacity, that we actually find the resources, that we find your grace to us moment by moment as you change us from one degree of glory to the next. To actually take on this character of Jesus, to love, not in a self-serving kind of way, but to, to, to love people that could never love us back, never repay us, the unseen, the unlovely, because that's what we were. We were unlovely. We didn't deserve. And yet you, out of your holiness, your grace, and your mercy, and your love for us, you gave us Jesus so that we could say yes and receive that love and be reconciled to you once again. Father, we thank you for the good news. Father, as we take bread and wine, as we take it in, as we digest that, as it nourishes us, um, Father, we pray that the gospel would do that as well, that we would take this truth into us, that we would digest it, that it would nourish us, that it would change us, that it would grow us into the people that are being described in this sermon, into the people that look like Jesus, that follow the way of Jesus, that practice the way of Jesus, that we would be sheep following the shepherd, and not goats out running around on our own. Father, we need your help this morning. Change us and make us more like your son. We ask this in your name.